Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 65th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Matt Emma. And I'm Oren Kaplan. And today I have an extra nasally voice because I got really sick. And we also have Bill Watterson on the podcast. He's a director that made a feature film called Dave Made a Maze. It won the Audience Award at Slamdance this year. It is incredibly inventive. It's about a man who builds a maze in his apartment out of cardboard and uh, an adventure that takes place inside of it. It's awesome. Uh, and we're going to talk about it a lot. But before we get to Bill Watterson, uh, I was just curious, today specifically, Matt, what have you been working on lately? Well, uh, all sorts of stuff. I think uh, things have finally gotten super busy. We always joke about when it rains, it pours. Um, but one of the things I've been trying to be more active about lately is um, just kind of going to screenings and stuff. It's film festival season, so I saw Dave Made a Maze at Chattanooga. We'll talk about that a little bit uh, and how great that was. So I went to the DWW screening last night. which is, Oh, cool. It was I didn't know that. Super fun. It was a director, uh, director's workshop for women it's put on through AFI. They've been doing it for like 30 years now. It's pretty competitive by this very, point. Very, very, very competitive. The alumni is... Uh, super renowned and really awesome and um it was really a ton of fun my wife was in one of the shorts that they did there um but i realized i don't think we've talked about the dww and how cool it is um so so for people who aren't familiar it's a an initiative put on by afi to empower uh female filmmakers to make shorts that are kind of right on the cusp of breaking into big mainstream Hollywood. Like these are people who are uh, getting letters of recommendation from, you know, big time, you know, like Quentin Tarantino was thanked in the the credits of the first film we saw, you know, it's that sort of caliber of people and they just need that extra push to launch their careers into the stratosphere. And so everything was really cool. It's like super stylized, really fun. Um, We watched a bunch of shorts. We watched a bunch of shorts. We watched all the shorts for this year and then they kind of introduce the next year's class, basically. Like I said, they're all kind of geared towards like kind of big mainstream stuff. And it felt like this year in particular that they were really trying to make a statement about how commercially viable and action-oriented and VFX-oriented these people were. 
So like everything looked really cool. Not, I mean, there were kind of some more traditional or, or artsier movies as well, but everything was just like, everything felt cool. It was a really fun, yeah, like poppy, poppy experience. And um, so I had a great time. It was really great. And then the keynote speaker before all of the shorts last evening was uh, Angela Robinson, who is this awesome director who, you know, she's directed a ton of TV kind of before it was cool. You know, she directed True Blood and um, had done a, a bunch of features, but um, she kind of holds a special spot in my heart because years ago when I was first out of college, um, she was directing uh, Herbie Fully Loaded. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay Lohan. And um, I was working for a nonprofit and the woman who started the nonprofit, her son worked at Disney. And so he took me on a tour of Disney. This was like kind of maybe, you know, one of my earliest times on a lot ever. And he was showing me around and Angela was mixing Herbie Fully Loaded. And we were introduced and she just kind of was like, oh, hey, do you want to come like listen to the mix just for a second? And it was just um, this really cool, really inspiring little act of kindness that's always stayed with me. And I'm like, I'm kind of, I get weirdly emotional about it because it's like, it's those those Hollywood stories where, you know, she just was just so nice and so warm effortlessly. She wasn't trying to to do anything special for anybody. She just naturally is that sort of person. It was really just kind of a thing that st- stuck with me. And then um, to see her like speaking and like ma- making a career out of empowering people and giving them the gift of filmmaking and standing up for people it was just like super cool like a really awesome vibe to be around. So like it really kind of set me in the right mood to just be like ready to enjoy these films and like be in a really warm supportive theater and like just watch awesome stuff. So it was great. And then Herbie fully loaded went on to win how many Razzies? (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Listen, we would both trade her left arms for her career. Yeah, Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just giving you a hard time, but no, that is really awesome. I kind of feel like if I did that to someone, I'd be like, hey, you want to come listen to the sound mix? They'd be like, uh, this is kind of boring. But if you do it to like the young sure. Matt Enlow, yeah, yeah. then you've like changed their lives. Yeah, it was incredible. That's cool. Well, good. Good to hear what you've been up to. And, and Oren, uh, <laughs> what have you been up to lately? Well, I've been up to a lot. But since we uh, are going to make this episode a two-part episode, I'm going to talk a lot more about it in the next part. Uh, And in this episode, I thought I would read some of our iTunes reviews that we've got recently because we promised people we would read the reviews if they post them on there. Uh, So, you know, if you want to post a review and like plug your own project or your own website, we'll read it on our podcast. And we just found out today that our Movie Maker magazine is went into print today. So they're going to talk about us in that magazine, which is cool. We're on the list of uh, essential podcasts, right. essential filmmaking podcasts, essential right. podcasts to avoid. <laughs> um, no, yeah, to we're... put you to sleep. Yeah, but thank you, Andy Young, for writing about us. Uh, what up, Andy? Yeah, he writes for Movie Maker Magazine. He's an editor uh, and talented filmmaker in his own right, but also it's always helped us out, which is really cool. So, anyway, I'm going to read some reviews. Starting in March, March twelfth, two thousand seventeen. Just Review It by Tony Toledo. This is the first review I've ever made the effort to leave on iTunes. This is one of my favorite podcasts and is an essential for the aspiring filmmaker. 
and is even slightly better than Making Movies is Hard, which is also a fine podcast. Ah, burn. Just subscribe to it. Hey, well, thanks, Tony. We yeah. don't need we don't need any beef, but yeah, everybody well, go listen to Making Movies is Hard as well. I f- have a feeling Tony Toledo is is just giving them a hard time. He's a real that. rascal, this Tony Toledo. I can tell. But thanks, Tony. Thanks, Tony. We appreciate it, man. Our next review comes from Mastafingas. Mm-hmm. Sounds slightly, <laughs> slightly perverted. Um, he says, wonderful, subscribe, five stars. This has an unusual openness and community for a professional directing conversation. The sincere format has me rooting for these guys and gives me perspective you can only get from other directors. If you found this and you haven't already subscribed, you should do so immediately. So that's cool. Hey, I think that's, that's what we're trying to do, right? It, it is funny. I never think about how open we are on this podcast. And then people will comment and I'll be like, oh, I guess we are maybe... A little more open than this smart. <laughs> right. I went into Sawhorse the other day and Gino was there who we had on the podcast. And he's like, oh, I just listened to your last episode. And you really uh, gave a lot of details out about the Charmin project. <laughs> I was like, yeah, should I not have? And he's like, eh, I don't know. To me, it's kind of like the test. Like we know we've gone big once we get in trouble for talking about oh, something. Interesting. Well, I, I, I have a hunt. I know that a handful of the producers that we work with listen to the podcast. What up, everybody? Okay, uh, finally, by Nathan Blackwell. He says, great directing podcast. I love filmmaking podcasts, but any on directing, let alone good ones, are so hard to find. Orrin and Matt do a great job of getting at the meat of what real working directors do. Hearing the process, the frustrations, and the real nuts and bolts of the job has been incredibly valuable and inspiring. I recommend this podcast all the time to my filmmaker friends and always look forward to the next episode. Which is interesting because I feel like our podcast downloads haven't gone up since Nathan started listening to it. So Nathan, come on, I, I I'm gonna work on that recommendation. I think that's untrue, but uh, thank you for recommending it anyway, Nathan. <laughs> Positive reinforcement here, Oren. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, and Nathan also wrote us a question that we will answer in the next podcast because we want to do it uh, when we have a little more time to address it. Uh, but yeah, thanks. I mean, I think I think that it's good to hear that. We are filling in that hole between the podcasts that talk about movies and art and the podcasts that talk about writing or cameras. Thank you so much for leaving those reviews. Please review us again. We'll read them out loud or let us know that you do not want us to read them out loud because maybe this is just boring. But uh, I'll tell you, I talk about it all the time, but I wrote into script notes one time and I was high off of it for a week. Oh, when they read your... When they read my question, it was right. like... I had to, I literally pulled over because I was so excited. I remember when that happened, when I was listening to script notes and I was like, Ugh, who is this Matt Unlow oh guy? God, it's boring. Oh it's so boring. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, thanks. And let's talk to Bill Watterson. We're here with Bill Watterson. Howdy. Director of Dave Made a Maze. And the reason that we got you here is because I was at the Cleveland Film Festival and Matt texted me and said you must see dave made a maze and i said he said he just saw it at chattanooga and then yeah. he loved it it was the opening night film oh it, you saw it on the imax screen i saw it on the imax you get to go through the maze experience that reconstructed the set yeah yeah what? i don't think i told oh. you this they they built so a little bit of context before we get really into it uh, dave made a maze is about nick thune uh building a he builds like a cardboard maze in his apartment and then these characters go on an adventure, right? In the and, maze. In the maze. And it's like there's a magical realism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very much so. Hopefully, anyway. <laughs> and so uh, at the Chattanooga Film Festival, which was a wonderful festival, I had a great time, um, 
the opening night film was Dave made a maze and they recreated the maze in the movie theater. So you Wait, go, who's they like people that exactly. work at the movie That's theater. That's a question I kept asking when the I pictures just, started coming in. Did Nick Thune fly over there? It was, um, uh, some people involved with the festival, local artists, and they just got a ton of volunteers together. Something like 500 volunteer what? hours. They built, uh, I mean, they, they had more of the maze standing than we ever did in production. It really was something special. And like, there was a ton of really wonderful artistry. Like there's yeah. a minotaur in the maze. Wait, what? And they based it on your maze? It's, it's the color scheme, the, uh, the visuals all drawn directly out of the film. Yeah. It was, it, it was unbelievable to see it unfold. And you weren't there? I, it was the same night we opened in Cleveland, which is my hometown. Oh my goodness. It was the same night we were at the Capitol Theater. That. I know it was heartbreaking because we had Cleveland booked first. Um, and we were very specific that we wanted to play the Capitol Theater in Cleveland because it's across the street from my brother's bar. Oh, and he was okay. he was not only an investor in the film, but he was hosting an after party for the. Sure, uh, right. I had a friend DJing, and you know, yeah, the whole, yeah. You, and we had you, you all have, that that's set like up. Hometown hero, yeah, that's incredible. exactly. Yeah. We had all that set up, and then Chattanooga was like, "Guess what? We're making you the opening night film." We're like, "Awesome!" And and we're opening on third. We're like, "Oh, great!" Right? Yeah. Wow. Um, so yeah. we couldn't be there, and it was only the whole thing was only standing for like twenty four hours. Did you yeah. see somebody made a cardboard tank and yeah. dro- drove yeah. it up to the? the a cardboard <laughs> tank oh was goodness. parked out front, yeah. which made me think, "Why didn't we have a? Why didn't we have a cardboard tank in the movie? What was I thinking?" <laughs> When I see a box, I think tank or Volvo. Right. <laughs> Usually a tank. Can't believe you didn't think of that. Anyway, you spoiled my story because what oh, I texted Matt back was, how on earth am I going to see this movie that you're watching at some crazy film festival somewhere? And he was like, it's at playing at Cleveland right now. I was like, okay, I'll keep an eye out for it. And while I was waiting to get into a movie that my wife was in, the reason I was in Cleveland, I saw this like homeless looking guy like bugging people in line for the movie to get their email addresses. That's my producer. Uh, yep. <laughs> and then I noticed that he was like handing out these Dave made a maze cards. And I went up to him. I was like, dude, somebody just texted me from Chattanooga about your film. And he was like, okay, can I have your email address? And I said, no. Wow. Rather, he hit you up that <laughs> hard. Not. Sorry. Wow. I'm like doing this email purge right now. That is um, the, that is a hard sell. I didn't realize he was and, going at going for the jugular. Well, like he that. was just doing it to everyone. And I actually think I might have ruined it for him because the people that had just given him their email address were looking at me like, hmm, why doesn't this guy trust him? <laughs> <laughs> we could have said no. Yeah. Right. Uh, anyway, but I was like, yeah, so are you Bill Watterson? And he's like, no, but he's here at the festival. And then uh, somehow I, I think I saw a picture of you in the... Like oh, the Facebook, the, the lookbook. The lookbook, yeah. yeah. So Cleveland Which Film Festival. Which is a Festival, great idea, by yeah, the way. They give oh. all the filmmakers a book that has a picture of every other filmmaker. What a great freshman year of college. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. so smart. So you can locate people, yeah. And so I was like, I saw him at the award ceremony. You can and pick out who to flirt with ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. Right in the middle of Bill finding out whether he won the award or not, I was like, hey, are you Bill? Uh, so my friend, <laughs> like his wife was in a movie, you might know her. And I feel like I was really annoying. No, at not time. at all. Not but I asked all. you to be on our podcast, and you said sure. And so. which was a great consolation prize because we didn't win anything. Well, I mean, you won the audience Except award at Slam Dance and our hearts <laughs> and our hearts. More and they built your entire. They probably spent more money rebuilding your movie. They did at Chattanooga than you spent building your movie. It bums. We had such a limited shoot space that we could only have one, maybe two set. No, more like two, two and a half sets up at any given time. So to see somebody actually get to walk through all of the sets in one go i was so jealous yeah no it was yeah. it was super fun and like that's the sort of stuff that i think chattanooga is really working hard to foster like you know regional regional festivals are a little tricky sometimes they can be a little 
uh, under-supported, but that one was really, um, like the community came out, it was really special, and they mm-hmm. kind of just go the extra mile to like program things that are very eclectic, you mm-hmm. know, like the program that my wife was in, the gamut was so huge, it was crazy, and just nice. like the film, like we saw yours, we saw like all sorts of crazy horror films, and like, you know, like Orange Wife's movie was playing in Chattanooga as well, so oh, it was nice. really... It's an endorsement for uh, Chattanooga Film Festival, but Bill, we're, we're not here to talk about Chattanooga. Well, well but <laughs> I, I can think, talk about Chattanooga. I all think night. it's like. Uh, I mean, I wasn't there, but I, I think the fact that they did this based on your movie is because your movie, the premise of your movie, is this thing that just like makes you think of like a zillion ideas. Like the second I saw right. either a trailer, or a poster, or one of your clips, I was like, ah, oh, God, why didn't I think of this? Yeah. You know, and I'm sure so many filmmakers see your movie and think that because it's like such a kind of like simple genius idea, you know, that makes everyone want to like come up with more ideas right around right. your movie. And it's definitely, it's definitely born out of what I know I did as a kid. And I know a lot of us did boys and girls just building and making sure. Yeah. And then, and then the premise of course is that it takes on a life of its own, um, which was hilarious to read the Chattanooga people in their interview. They're like, yeah, well, we started with this thing and then it just sort of kept getting bigger and it took on a life of its own. I was like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> I know that feeling. So, uh, so Bill, before I did a bad job of explaining your film, go ahead and uh, give us give us the uh, the pitch for Dave yeah, Made of course. a Maze. Um, Dave Made a Maze is about a, a frustrated artist who builds a cardboard fort in his living room and when his girlfriend comes home, she discovers he's trapped inside. Um, and she organizes a group of oddball um, friends to rescue him. When they get inside, they realize that it's a huge fantasy world inside, and there's a there's a, a minotaur and booby traps, and they're all running for their lives. Uh, as you said, very much relying on magical realism, suspension of disbelief. And part of the people they bring in there are like a camera crew, right? Yeah, one of their buddies, Harry, uh, played by uh, the inimitable, inimitable James Urbaniak, uh, is a documentary filmmaker, and he brings his camera crew in. He, you know, senses a chance. This is my chance. Right. They're, they're one of my favorite, and I can't remember if it was me reacting to his performance or the note I gave him for the performance. But when his character first walks in the maze, the very first time he steps in, and you realize, oh my god! And uh, Adam Bush has this wonderful line: "It is bigger." Uh, and you see for the audiences for the first time, oh my god! It, it, it is a, this big fantasy world. The look on James's face was just like. I have just received my Oscar. <laughs> you know, he's like, I'm going to win an Oscar. That was like the look on his face. It's awesome. Right. And so when you decided what characters will comprise this team, do you, I feel like usually when you have like a documentary filmmaker character, it's because you want to be able to show some foot, like found, shoot some stuff, found footage style. Cause right. it's easier sometimes to hide things. But other times it might be like as a, you know, representation of yourself, right? Like you're the filmmaker, maybe. You have your main guy played by Nick Thune, and mm-hmm. then you have his girlfriend. How did you choose how to round out the rest of the team? The um the the co writer Stephen Sears had a lot of that clay on the wheel already, like a sixty, sixty five page draft mm-hmm. before I even started getting involved. Um and all those characters were present. And I know that's because he was logging for reality TV at the time. And it, I, in a lot of ways Excuse me, I just cracked a beer, which you probably heard, and it already made me burp. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, I think it was his chance to get back at the hack directors that he had to uh, mm-hmm. he had to transcribe, and the way that they tried to force every moment to be a story moment when it was you know just sitting in some jackhole's living room. Right. Um, can so, you just just for our listeners that don't know, can you tell us what logging reality? Yeah, film of course. Means? 
Um, so he would, he would listen to all of the footage that was shot and have to type out what everyone said, whether or not it was going to be used or not, or whether or not it was, it was good or not. He had to, everything that anyone said on camera had to be written down. So you would hear the director as, as James does in the film off camera saying, okay, so they're not going to hear me. So just answering complete sentences. So that way, when it looks like somebody's just talking and talking, they're actually being prompted the whole time to tell me, tell me how you, you guys met. And then when you answer, you have to say, well, we first met, da-da-da. You can't just say, oh, at a bar, because mm-hmm. there's no context. Right. And they, wanna, they want the director to be invisible. Right. But they're so not invisible <laughs> in, the, in the actual making of it. Um, and so and they have in to logging it out it, yeah. so that people can search for it. So an editor can search out. So an editor yeah, can yeah. be yeah. like, oh, I wonder if they ever said anything about this. Where, right. did, where did they meet? And it's almost like their version yeah. of, a, of a very fat draft of a script. Right. They can look and, and grab these choice lines and stuff. I like wonder that. if they do that for like big, high budget narrative films. If like the assistant editors like log all the. Dialogue. I worked at Trailer Park. It was before it was Trailer Park. Actually, I worked at Creative Domain before it um, got bought out by Trailer Park, which and, is a company that edits trailers. Yeah, big Hollywood trailers. And it was the. It seemed to me like the most wildly inefficient system I had ever seen. They had people watching dailies, who had the script next to them and were logging. So they had their own, they were like writing a new script based on what was actually being shot, mm-hmm. including outtakes and things that wouldn't be used in the movie, but might be used in the trailer. So they had people like writing the script based on the dailies. They had editors who were cutting, cutting versions of the movie based on the script out of the dailies. And these were people that weren't at involved the at the trailer house. So they weren't involved in making the movie. These weren't versions of the movie that anyone would ever see. And then they had, you know, dubbed, this was, they had VHS copies and dubbed and passed around so that people could watch these incomplete versions of the movies to then start thinking about what the script for the trailer would be. Mm-hmm. It seemed insanely labor intensive, but then I got to do things like take home a copy of Hellboy that was cut based off dailies before any of the special effects were in it. Right. And get high and watch it and be like, wow, this doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> My eyes hurt. There's so much green. Yeah. It was good. Like he's wearing, he's wearing green um, leggings. Oh, right. Uh, Hellboy. So it's like there's this awesome waist up, like cowboy's waist up. Isn't it? Makes himself look like a bad director. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Basically, a cowboy shot of him, and he looks badass and he's huge. And then he he walks away and he's got this tiny little butt and green tights. And you're like, (laughs) what is going on? But that tape would be worth some money nowadays. Yeah. I I unfortunately sent it to a friend of mine in San Francisco to watch, and I (laughs) never never got it back. Uh, Oh, so Steve was logging. The, yeah. Your, the co-writer. yeah, the co-writer Stephen Sears w- was working in reality TV at the time, um, so I, I know that 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 music, that those voices mm-hmm. were just in his head. Initial dr- dr- uh, <gasps> drafts of the script, all the characters were people we knew. Mm-hmm. Some of them were m- more people he knew than I knew, but um, everyone's name was the real name of who they are in real life, and that was right up until like the fifteenth draft when we mm-hmm. started being like, all right, we better name these characters. And the the James Urbaniak Harry character was actually Bill. Because he was this frustrated director, and I was just starting to take some filmmaking classes at LACC, and Steve acted in my first two shorts, and you know I was trying to run sound and camera and direct, and it was a mess, and I was stressed out, and uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of my frustration in in trying to make things how I want them to be, but can't very much. That's very much Harry's Harry's voice. 
But I, um, did, I did not tell James that his character was based on me because <laughs> I wanted him to trust me as a director. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what, he was so good. And I think the, the whole cast was really special. Um, mm. How did you put together that cast? The entire cast was offer only. Nobody read. We had no table reads, no chemistry reads, uh, no auditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and every we should mention only. that Bill has acted a lot. And no, yeah, knew I, came a lot up, of I came up as an actor, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, let's see, almost everyone came through someone we knew or mm-hmm. someone once removed. Like uh, Adam Bush had done a vaudeville show that I used to host at Second City. So mm-hmm. I was familiar with him. And he had done actually a pitch pilot that I produced. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Scott Krinsky had done that same vaudeville show and was friends with the producer, John Charles Meyer, because of a theater company connection. That's also how we got a hold of Kristen Vangsness from mm-hmm. Criminal Minds who plays Jane. Um, Mira um, had actually been in a pilot, or, or no, the reverse. Our producer, John, had been in the pilot of Weird Loners with Mira. Oh, funny. But she came across my plate through our casting director, Lord and Napoli. But then there was a personal connection there, which made her more willing to, to, mm-hmm. to read a weird script from two unknowns. Um, Nick, we had reached out to his agent because my editor said, look at this guy. I think he's good. I think mm-hmm. he's right for, for, you should consider him for Dave. And he was perfect. He had that, sort of physical boyishness mm-hmm. that you that I thought like as soon as you see him on camera it's like you're you're on his side a little bit and you can forgive some of that arrested development because it's got mm-hmm. that we have the line in the movie where James is like uh, are you getting the ineptitude and boyish charm it's like he that's had, a very good that. James actually oh, <laughs> I did a lot of James's uh, ADR <laughs> right <laughs> up until the uh, final cut that's really funny. Um, but uh, Nick just had that. So he had an arrested development, but there was a childlike quality that, that, that sort of bought you a lot of forgiveness, which I think you had to have with Dave because he's basically made a mess and it is all his fault. Right. Um, so you didn't know Nick ahead of time. I didn't know him, but our editor works with David Wayne a lot and we had sent the script to CAA and weren't getting any traction. And David Wayne just said, hey, Nick, my, you know, my editor says you should look at the script. And Nick was in our offices the next day. I kind of feel our like offices. this is a really good lesson a lot of people, indie filmmakers, think if they get this great casting director, then everything else will f- and will fall into place. You know, mm-hmm. they'll have people read the script, they'll attach mm-hmm. people, and then they'll raise financing off that. And like I, I feel like we just always talk about how the casting director is definitely one part of the puzzle, but it's just like we were talking before we started recording. Like you need to have like two or three like ways to an actor, yeah, mm-hmm. in order to get them to pay attention to you, unless you're famous. Or yeah. offering millions of dollars. And we had, um, Steve and, and John and I actually uh, had logged a lot of time at uh, Second City Hollywood. And that was very instrumental when we were first raising money because we got letters of intent from a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Big, you know, people who were big to me who would have been great in the film but weren't available by the time shooting came around. Right. Some of them were. Frank Caietti from Mad TV is a Second City uh, Chicago main stage guy. And he was he was a, one of our targets from day one for the boom operator and ended up being able to play it, which was great. Um, and it was our second city contacts that brought in Rick Overton. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a text two days before we were shooting the hobo role. And he's like, sure, I'll be there. You know, great. Um, Stephanie Allen. is in Stephanie it, right? Allen uh, came across uh, the, the casting director, brought her to me, but she knew Nick. And once mm-hmm. Nick was signed up, she was a lot more inclined right. to say yes. Uh, James and and um, Adam Bush had a pre-existing relationship, so they were like, the, the, you know, it's it's like a, it's it's 
the ball starts ball starts mm-hmm. rolling down the hill and it, it gathers momentum. Yeah. But but we there's had a, there's a certain like pedigree at a certain point as well yeah. too. It's like oh well, those people are very cool and very funny. Right. So maybe you don't know the director, but you know right. some of these other people who have said yes. Right. Um. And if you already like the material, then then okay, you're 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 a lot more willing. But our our initial um private placement memorandum that went out to raise money, um through individual equity investors. That's as much as I can say about that because I can't. Be, I, I'm, I'm like a parrot. Like I don't, I'm terrible with this stuff. Sure, yeah. But uh, I know that's what we did. <laughs> but I can't. I don't know how much more detail I can go into it just because I, I don't speak the language. The uh, the private placement memorandum had a lot of um, had photos of a lot of actors who had signed letters of intent and and said they would do the the film. Um, that's not how we got other actors necessarily, but it's definitely how we were able to raise funds. And then once mm-hmm. we had funding, it was a lot easier to go to an actor being like, no, it's fully funded. Like you don't know who we are. It's a SAG modified low budget, but it's fully funded, right? Um, and modified low budget that's like under five twenty five or something. Yeah. So for our listeners, basically SAG has these rules and these categories of mm-hmm. how much you're allowed to pay the actors, and it's based on your budget. And you know, a lot of times people aren't super truthful about their budget because they right. want to pay the actors a little a bit less, less, but they want to yeah. spend more, and they pay people like producers. I don't know. It's all sorts of like when I did my movie. We were modified low budget, even though it was like 700,000 because we had this like incentive for actors with disabilities. If you, had, if you cast enough actors oh, no. with disabilities in your film, you can go up to $800,000 and still be modified low budget. I didn't know that. Um, all sorts of kind of weird rules. But, uh, but yeah, I think modified low budget tells them that it's a, above... There's some. It's Sa- there's a SAG ultra right? low budget yeah. too. Yeah, you kind of know what bracket you're following. Well, there's in. like... Yeah. Right, there's like under a hundred, right? Like micro budget, then from one hundred to two fifty or something. Oh, right, right. I forgot about the it's micro like budget. Ultra low. Breakdown. What's funny is that low budget is under like two and a half million or something, right. or four yeah, million, right. something yeah. kind of big, <laughs> for I think the you know a normal person that says low budget, right. right? But we still we still had to sell people on it. I mean, I uh, I had a you know a Skype call with Mira. Um, she wanted to meet me before committing to anything. Nick came to the build space. He was like, well, okay, I, I really like the script, but and, and I like some of the people that are doing it, but I want to meet these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like people weren't just signing up left and right. Like they 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 did want to meet us either in person or on Skype or or see. In the case of Stephanie, she actually had some some significant um, prosthetic work. Um, her character turns into paper at one point, and um, <coughs> you know we were hearing from her agent that they wanted to, to see some proof of concept and how. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there was concern about how uncomfortable it might be and stuff like that. Not not only is this going to be done artfully, but is is my client going to be comfortable? Right. Um. So it wasn't it wasn't as and this was all within days before we were shooting. So because of things that have people that had dropped out, things that had fallen through. This was actually years ago now. It was 2015. But if I remember it correctly, we got our, our again our private placement memorandum was worded such that if we didn't raise enough money at a certain time, the money reverted back mm-hmm. um, in good faith. Obviously, we didn't want people to think, okay, if you're going to give us your money, we're going to just sit on it forever. Right. And you um, have to raise enough for production, but not necessarily to finish the film. Exactly. Right? And then we shot a concept video, like a concept fundraising video that we were thinking we might have to crowdsource this. Let's figure out what this is going to be. But we didn't want to crowdsource. Um and the video had had stuff we wouldn't have had the rights to, so it wouldn't have worked as a crowdsourcing video necessarily. But um, it was more proof of concept. Like we got to figure out some way to engage people, and this is more visual and exciting. Mm-hmm. We used dance, magic, dance from Labyrinth, and we had mm-hmm. clips of Legend and and 
Goonies and all the stuff you'd expect us to do. Right. The Thing, this great clip from uh, Carpenter's The Thing, um, to emphasize all the practical effects that we were planning on doing and all that. And, and then images of our, of our um, committed cast and stuff like that. And uh, that netted us our final like 100 grand. Oh, so you did crowdsource the... the no, it, no, that no, it all came from a, a producer. Oh, oh, uh, that butter story. thing that you made... Considering that yeah, this might right. be a crowdsourcing video, it might, we're not 100% sure. We made it a private link on our website and we got uh, Butter Stories to come in for, I think it was around 100. And suddenly we had exactly as you said, enough to get the movie in the can to shoot it, to complete shooting, but not enough to for post-production and to actually finish it. Um, but the money was, we were at risk of the money reverting back. All the other money we'd raised reverting back to the, the investors. Mm-hmm. Right. So we sort of had this, okay, well, we start shooting in six weeks. Or we give all the money back and start over right. next year or whatever. As a person um, that's like invested in movies before, that's kind of the only way that I think any normal person would be willing to invest in a movie with like a newer filmmaker is knowing that like they can't just spend all the money and not make a movie. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We had a very, uh, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this for a first time filmmaker, but we had a very thorough, very <laughs> expensive piece of legal paperwork in that private placement memorandum it was some 70 some pages and it had um the on the creative side it had like the summary of the film the actors who were going to be involved blah 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 but then it also had a super detailed budget breakdown and mm-hmm. and and roi return on investment promises and and all of the uh, all the wording about the money reverting if we didn't raise it a certain amount you know raise mm-hmm. a certain amount so it definitely showed people that we were serious and that we took their money very seriously and that we weren't um hey give us some money because we want to make a thing right you know right but it was like a eight thousand dollar legal document or something like that like our first investor almost all of our first investors money went to that document (laughs) right to you know show other investors that we meant business well so um when you talked to mira on the skype call Mm -hmm. what did you were, were you nervous like what did you say to her to sell her on the move um i was definitely nervous um because I was in pre-production and we were about to shoot. So I was just nervous period <laughs> about everything. I mean, we were so, it was such a daunting task and we didn't have the physical space to build anything more than the apartment ahead of time. So all of the fantasy worlds still weren't realized, um, which was pretty terrifying going into production. I'd looked, I'd looked at her tape. I loved the fact that she wasn't white to be frank. That wasn't a plot point, but it, I, I didn't want to make a movie that was just a bunch of white people, you know, and we'd had a, lo- a lot of offers to, um, to actors of color who, who turned us down. Um, the, our original plan was to have it be much more, uh, much less white than it is. Uh, so that was, that was very exciting to me. Um, it wasn't, the, I wouldn't hire someone just because of that, you right. know, but it, but it, it was certainly appealing. Did you um, mention you did not mention that on the Skype call? No, 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 <laughs> definitely not. Um, but we talked mostly about tone, which with a movie like this is essential because it is it is so silly and it is a comedy, but <coughs> there are really high stakes. There are people mm-hmm. are losing their lives. Um, it there's a chance it could all be a dream. You know, there's it's it and it deliberately ends somewhat unresolved. So that was actually a tough conversation and I thought I was going to lose her because we we were talking about the metaphors that it's very much um, the uh, metaphor for the creative process and what it's like to be inside the mind of a, the maze becomes the mind of a creative person and not just an artist, but anybody who's trying to accomplish anything, you know, that, that the the self-defeat, 
the way you can lash out um, when when you're in a frustrated state. You, you end up doing harm to the people you care about when you are not um, focused and on a path. Um, th- that's not limited to artists, but it's it's very that, much a thing of the creative life. Did that guide you guys through the script writing? Too? Yeah, 100%. It, Steve, when Steve was writing it, he was writing a, a, a story about a relationship, which is why it's got such a great relationship core. When I came on and I was looking at the overall themes and what is, in one sentence, what is this movie about? It was, this is a movie about the creative process. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very much what I was bringing to the table about like lining everything up to, to, to fit into that theme and like justifying everything from wardrobe color to shot selection based on that theme. Sorry, so people know Matt has seen the movie and I have not seen the movie. <laughs> Maybe my aunt, my questions are kind of dumb, but did you take like what you thought of the as the linear progression of the creative process and split it into three acts? No, not at all. Okay. Now we did we weren't talking about three act structure. Steve very much writes by like it just explodes out of him, mm-hmm. and then I sort of look at what's there and be like, okay. What's this about? What's going on? What's at the heart of this? That's so funny because like I think it's very overtly a hero's journey, you know, in in kind of like the the classic prototypical sense. So it's funny mm-hmm. to, to think of it as like something that was a little more freewheeling and a little less Campbellian, you know. That's mm-hmm. so funny. Um, um, I mean, we definitely we had our fingers on <coughs> Dave's fatal flaw because it's all of ours. Mm-hmm. It, his thing is that he he never. He's a creator, he's a maker, but he never finishes anything like that. Mm-hmm. And we hit that a lot in the script and, and in the visuals. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of the only reason that the rest of the band of people decide to help him in any way, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of the threat of like, oh, everyone understands that it is important to finish these things and that Dave hasn't. Right, right. And Harry relates to it very much so and he has this wonderful line. And as soon as Steve and I wrote it, we looked at each other and we're like, oh, because um, we just thrown down the gauntlet. Harry says, uh, they're questioning Dave about why why he didn't build what we call in the movie the chrysalis, which is sort of the center, the power source, the very, and he never built it. And his reasoning is that if he built it, then it could be destroyed. And then Harry just very nonchalantly says, well, you never have to fail if you never finish anything. And we wrote that line, and we're like, oh, that's poetry. And then we're like, oh my God, if we don't finish this movie, right. we've just called ourselves out. Right. You know, and this was year two of a six year journey, you know, um, and we we it was there on paper. It's 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 up to us to finish this movie or we have just betrayed ourselves because we know this to be true. Um, so that we were very much working with Dave's fatal flaw there um, of of not completing anything. And that, that informed things like uh, Dave's theme from the uh, from the composers. Mm-hmm. It has this it, rising thing that keeps stopping. The actual theme doesn't resolve, doesn't complete. Either something happens to stop it or um, he gets cut off or the theme gets cut off until he's finally building the scene at the, in the climax where they're building the chrysalis and building the thing that allows them to destroy the maze and therefore be free. Um, then that theme finally actually resolves. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that theme, I got that from Sidney, Sidney Lumet's Making Movies. Mm-hmm. Fantastic book to read, certainly for a first-time director. Um, if you know your theme in and out, you can filter every question. You know, the answer is always there if you look at the theme. Uh, and I very much found that to be true. So it was important to me in, in early drafts to, to, you know, really be eloquent about what the theme is. 
Uh, I, I kind of want to circle back a little bit, actually, because to talking to actors and kind of your crew in general, because it's hard to uh, impress on someone who hasn't seen the movie. And we'll have you know clips on the website of like oh, cool. the uh, you know the trailer and all of that. It's like if Labyrinth was made with packing materials and cardboard, <laughs> right? Very and, much so. And so you're you're really just kind of going through every single <laughs> different gag and idea that you can think of, like. What's the way to push this aesthetic as hard as mm-hmm. as far as you can? Like we've all seen like yeah, some cute cardboard stuff, but this just takes it to infinity and beyond, right? Yeah. Um, which is a really hard thing to communicate to skeptical actors, producers, all of that stuff. So you talked a little bit about how you had a, a kind of a proof of, con- proof of concept video. Mm-hmm. Tell us about how you made how you managed to get everyone on board on this crazy idea. Like so the, yeah. much luck, so much luck. Um, I, um, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm an actor and I, I did a lot of work with the SAG Conservatory at AFI, the American Film Institute. They, they have about 15, 20 directors a year. Each of them have to make three films a year. And then the next year they make a thesis film. So you've got in two years of classes at AFI, you've got, I already can't do the math. You've got a ton 16, of movies being made. Um, and they need to work with, they have to work with union actors unless they come up with very specific reasons why not. So they use this conservatory. Um, so I would, I was acting in, you know, a dozen movies a year at AFI and I was like logging, not only listening to what works on set and what doesn't work on set, but also who's the cinematographer who's a nerd for gear. Cause I don't like gear. I love storytelling, but I don't like gear. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to work with a cinematographer, they've got a, they, they ha- that's the strength they have to bring to the table. Um, and I started building a team out of that. And then everyone there knows other people at AFI. And, you know, once someone says yes, then other people jump on board. But where I really got lucky was I acted in Trisha Gum's thesis film for the directing workshop for women at AFI. And she was the art director of Robot Chicken at the time. Um, she's now blown up. She was co-director of Lego Batman. I mean, she's completely blown up, but she was the perfect person for our movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really nervous to approach her, but eventually I did. And she, she signed on to be the production designer. Well, it's um, a production designer's dream, right? Yeah, exactly. And she said, you know, who would be perfect for this? John Sumner, who works at stupid buddy, which is the production company that does uh, robot chicken and, and a bunch every, mm-hmm. m- most of the st- cool stop motion stuff. Uh, John Sumner is, is, is not only uh, brilliant on set, but he's an artist who works in fine art using cardboard as his medium. Like, oh, wow. What? That's a thing. Uh, so then we had Trisha and John, and they're, they're such good people, and they're so talented that when they're doing something, and I've seen it in their own work, their own short films and stuff like that. I saw it on set with Trisha for her thesis. This just flock of talented people just show up. Mm-hmm. Um, they will get behind what these people do because they're so talented. They're so kind. They're so focused and driven. Um, so then the, the dominoes really started to fall. And when Trisha wasn't available, Trisha had to go to Australia for Lego Batman, her now fiance Jeff White stepped in, became our art director, uh, and also got additional production design credit, which he deserved for all the amazing work he did. And he's like, you know, a friend of mine works for the Cardboard Institute of Technology. I bet I could get him down from San Francisco. Just like <laughs> what? What? Like it just it CIT? got yeah, it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it just kept it kept there. There were people who saw the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, they love the material. A lot of people on the production side and the acting side said, you wrote a script about me, which I was not expecting to hear because that seemed so personal 
mm-hmm. an individual. But then, of course, I did take that step back to say, okay, what's this about? It's about the creative process. That is a much more universal thing. Right, right, um, right. And I that love, just landed in a way I didn't expect it to. I love that the production designer's like, I really love the material. Cardboard. Right. Is <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I imagine if I was a production designer and someone came to me that hadn't like made a lot of movies and told me this thing, on one hand, I'd be like, wow, this is an awesome idea. On the other hand, I'd be like, wait, how much budget and crew right. and how much input are you going to give me or am I going to have to make all these genius maze parts and you'll take all the credit for it? You know? we, we, how does that we work? Got, we got lucky that, um, again, Trisha and John are trusted in the industry. So so when they were our production designers, and obviously Jeff had a very personal relationship with Trisha as well, um, those three people were trusted enough that people were working for them as much as they were for me. They liked the script and they trusted them. Um, but did you have like a, did you diagram the entire maze before you brought them on or how did that work? No, the script was pretty specific about a lot of the rooms, but it was also, there was also a lot of, okay, what's the best idea and what do we have? Um, for one example, uh, we got all of the cardboard was donated or repurposed. We didn't spend a dollar on, on cardboard materials. And we got extremely lucky. Again, uh, um, American Apparel let us pull up a pallet truck and just, or uh, sorry, a cube truck and just load it. I thought you were going to say they went out of business. We, <laughs> super lucky. <laughs> uh, security's really lax. Yeah. Got all these free clothes. Yeah, yeah. Um, they just let us pull up a truck and load it with all of their cardboard. Um, so uh, the, the spindles, originally we were just going for spindles because we thought they'd be cool and they ended up being the spike bed that kills the dude from OK oh, Go. Yeah. But then it turns out there were pallets of, pristine cardboard they're like yeah you can have it and one of the pallets i walked up to i was like it was thick it was beautiful i couldn't wait and then when i got up there i saw it had it had these holes in it oh cool and i was like oh crap we can't use this and i said you know what throw it in the truck anyway and then we had enough of it that i went to jeff and i said you see those do you think we could do like a stanley kubrick empire strikes back kind of a cord like could we do a hexagonal corridor with that and that was something that that was a look that was born out of what we had on hand. Yeah. I mean, there was and, this, and the scene being, was in the movie. Right. Obviously the scene was still in the script. There was this nice intimate scene, but then I was like, you know where, you know where the perfect look for that scene would be is this thing we think we can pull off. Right. Um, so uh, some of it, some of it was born out of what do you, what, you know, what, what do you have with you? I always think of that scene in, um, is it Apollo 13 that I, I just assume yeah, yeah. is Ron Howard's yeah. homage to filmmaking where they're like, here's what's on the ship. He just dumps that box out in front of like six scientists. He's like, here's what's on the ship. Out of this, you have to save the astronauts. It's like, right. that's what filmmaking That's like is. a classic movie trope too, right? Yeah. Like in 127 hours, he's like, I got a knife. I have two days of water. I have... Right. It's like yeah. when what's yeah. M gives James Bond his weapons or whatever. Right, exactly. Yeah, it was, so it was very much that. I, it was... Certainly people responded to the script. They thought it was very funny. A lot of people were like, damn, I wish I'd thought of that. Um, right. and, uh, you know, when you, when you, when you say, I'm going to make a movie about a guy who gets trapped in a cardboard maze, the people who are going to say yes, they're only going to say yes. Cause they get it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to pull anybody into that movie. They're right. going to be like, Oh, awesome. I want to do that. Um, right. like it, it wasn't a lot of trying to convince people. They were like, that sound, this could be a disaster, but it sounds fun. Yeah, well, I think it can be like because when I it's heard real the log test. line, <laughs> yeah, when I heard the log line, I was like, it could be like room, 
but with cardboard, you right. know, <laughs> or it could be, or even buried, right? Mm-hmm. right? This tiny thing, or it could be this, yeah, labyrinth with cardboard. Uh, and it's cool that it's the latter. Is yeah. what's just out of curiosity, how do you attach all these pieces of cardboard to each other? Everybody is covered in hot glue gun burns. Mm. Everybody. It was an army. I mean, our department was 35 people, like, and um, on the technical side, no staples or, um, that's a good point. Else. Yeah, I think I think we started with like theater flats, and it was a combination of staple guns and and glue. But you didn't want staples too many staples on the exterior because they catch the light in an unpleasant oh, way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a lot of maybe the foundational work was done with staple guns and screw guns, and then everything was just glued on. I mean, we used like three thousand glue sticks or something. <laughs> was um, everything lit like overhead? Like we had a, we had a grid. We had a soundstage in Glendale. It wasn't really a soundstage. It wasn't soundproof or anything like that. It was just a space in Glendale that had a grid. Um, a room, which, which a room. <laughs> yeah, warehouse is right by uh, right by Golden Road. Oh, is it uh, called um, Affordable Sound Stages? Mm, I don't. Is think, it right I don't by think Coyote? So. No, you know what it is? It, it's it's over there, but it's actually directly next door to Solar City. Oh, okay, which okay. was incredibly lucky because they had a cardboard designated dumpster. <laughs> And we ran out of cardboard. Like, guys, we can't like, shoot this scene for two days until they fill up the stuff. We ran out of cardboard like a week in the production. We thought we had enough for the whole movie. And a week in the production, I was like, we're going to need more. And they just let us. We just sent PAs and the producer over sure. daily to just raid their dumpster. And then again, it was like, okay, well, this is what we've got. Now what can we do with it? Right. Um, Did you paint any of the cardboard? Or is only- it mainly brown? No, because it, it, we had so many different textures, and then they you would tear it so that you get like the, the inside almost like what's that right, new waffly kind of. the new buck shoe, which is like when you split leather. Um, yeah, you get the waffly stuff, um, and we had we had food stained stuff. We had uh, you know beer boxes that have those beer can circles on them, so that it had everything had its own texture, and every everything was already these different colors. They definitely took that into account. Um, but did you have you to know, avoid logos? They like painted like with it. Yeah, we we avoided logos. Um, initially, we were trying to use that as a chance to maybe have some product placement, product placement but it, it didn't go anywhere. Um, we avoided logos. There were certain colors I didn't want because I thought they interrupted the theme. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want the color blue uh, anywhere because uh, that's the color of the sky, and the sky in this case would be freedom, and I wanted that to be the thing that's denied them all the time, which is why when they see the Majora which is a giant vagina made out of cardboard. Um, the deep center of it is uh, hypnotizing them. And I told all the actors, you're seeing exact whatever it is you need most in that moment. That's what you're seeing. And it's blue. And that's, and that's sort of that they have been denied the sky for so long. That's why that is such an appealing thing. And then that's why that color has so much power. The, mm-hmm. the blue uh, um, towels that they use to, right. inst- you know, old fort trick, instant wall, you hang up a towel and there that stops the minotaur. Cause it's, so this thing has the power to stop the Minotaur. That blue was very powerful. And I love the fact that the Minotaur wore one as a cape. It's almost like just wearing your problems on your sleeve. Like, I'm, I, this is not going to beat me. You know, it's like Superman being like, make my suit out of kryptonite. Right, right. I'll figure it out. <laughs> um, and then Dave, of course, when he does succeed in the, the only exterior shot in the whole film, they're out in the blue sky and his shirt is blue and Mira hands him a, piece of candy and it's blue and it's like everything's gonna be okay we're we're free you know we've overcome the the fatal flaw that we were discussing right uh what is the what is the thing you wish you knew before you started the movie um 
I guess I wish I knew how great it was going to be because I was so stressed <laughs> out. Not great, like my how, movie's perfect. How nice though. But just how that, that it was going to be that it was gonna be okay. <sighs> yeah. Because I was so stressed out. I felt so much pressure to stick the landing that it was overwhelming that so many people, you know, we keep saying, so how'd you get so many people? I'm like, I kind of don't know. And that first day on set when there were like 75 people there trying to make my joke or my idea or mine and Steve's idea a reality, like it was overwhelming. And I, it was bigger than I thought it was going to be. The whole, the movie looked better than I thought it was going to be. The actors were better than I thought they were going to be. Everything was bigger and better than I thought it was going to be, which made me incredible incredibly stressed out Mm -hmm. and i i do wish i could just take that step back and i hope in making the next one i I have that um self-awareness to to enjoy it a little bit more Mm -hmm. there were certainly moments of joy on set and and very specific moments that i remember thinking this is the greatest thing that's ever happened but did you have a moment where you were like oh this is gonna work like a realization, right? Because it's so crazy. It's there was, so out there. There were two. There were two. There was one when we put the uh, the mini maze. There's a gag where he makes a maze within his maze, and that mini maze actually is the bedroom from the apartment, just That's with funny. stuff stuck on it. That's how like quickly we were turning things around. Um, and it looked beautiful, and they used all squares and, and squares on squares, and it just looks beautiful. And we put the camera up, and every time someone walked by monitor, someone's like, "Ah, oh, that looks like the apartment in Blade Runner." Somebody walked by and like, "Oh, that looks." That looks like the surface of the Death Star. Somebody else walked by and was like, wow, that looks like the well of the souls in Raiders. And I was just standing there being like, yeah, it <laughs> looks like all three of those things and this is going to be fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so there was that, but then there's, there's almost like a spiritual, spiritual is not the right word, but there are moments where, and which I, I know you guys know where you realize that it's ta- everything's taken on a life of its own and it's much bigger than you or you and your friends or you and your team. Um there's one room that Stephanie Allen and uh, uh, Tim Nordwin, the bass player from OK Go, they hang, they hang out in. And it's uh, they were looking for themes, and they just picked triangles. And it's got um, pillars in it, and there's this, it just looks really, again, it's like triangles on triangles. It looks super funky, really cool. Tim walks on set with his wardrobe that I'd approved but didn't come up with, and his shirt is covered in triangles, and I didn't even connect mm-hmm. it. And then Stephanie walks on, and she's got these, beautiful little triangle earrings and these are the kinds of things if i were hitchcock i would have said needed to happen but i didn't have that kind of time i didn't have that kind of foresight we only had we had less than a month of pre-production um or maybe five weeks i think and a lot of decisions were being made on the fly including the look of that room we had the spike bed and we knew it had pillars and we had a couple shots planned based on the placement of the pillars but the actual that specific uh, flourish of, of triangles was something that Jeff came up with on the spot. Mm-hmm. And then when the actors walk in and they're all wearing triangles and you put it on camera and there's a billion triangles and you're just like, well, that has nothing to do with me. Right. <laughs> I didn't have, I made none of those decisions. Well, you hired all those people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, yeah, you're, you're the ones doing the ship, but it like, I would love to say that I, I demanded triangle, you know, but right. it, I made none of those decisions and, and it, and it was all there. And I, I definitely felt, this movie is being taken care of by by forces larger than my will. <laughs> and we're going to stop Bill right there because we've got so much awesome stuff to talk about that we thought, uh, let's make this one a two-parter. Um, whenever you have a conversation with somebody so insightful and smart, I thought, well, we, we don't want to cut anything out. So stay tuned next week for the conclusion of our conversation with Bill Watterson and the creation of Dave Made a Maze and for our unpaid endorsements. 
Until then, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.